Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. Uh, Hebrews 11 is where we're at. If you knew, we've been walking through this uh, chapter of the Bible for about two and a half months, which I know at first glance seems way too long to walk through a chapter of the Bible, but it's been highly enjoyable to take these little vignettes, these little stories, and try to extract some of the major principles from them and be reminded of kind of the scope and sequence of biblical history. And right now we're in the story of Moses. We've gone through uh, Abel and Cain and Noah and Enoch and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we're at the story of Moses. We started it last week, and today's part two will end the story of Moses, his parents, him personally, and then his people. And I want to remind you just briefly, in case you weren't here last week, of what we said and then cover some new territory. But if you would, look for me at chapter uh, 11, verse number 23. It begins the story of Moses with his parents. And it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, he was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child, meaning they saw that there was something unusual about him. There was something beautiful about him that this, this kid was just special looking. And they were not afraid of the king's commandment. So the process here is they have a powerful conviction. They have this conviction that there's something special about their child, that God has a plan for their child. And that alone is a challenging thought because they're living in a day and age that was dark and gloomy. Uh, They could have been first-class pessimists. Because there was so much oppression, they were enslaved as people, there was murder being leveled at their children, there was, there was a lot to be scared about, and in many ways, I'm sure like they felt the sun had set on their nation, yet these are people that have this confidence that God's going to do something with our kid, they're parents of faith. And from time to time, I'll hear people say pastoral, you know, Hey, Pastor, it's, it's, it's kind of dark days. You know, it's a scary thing to bring kids into the world nowadays. Who knows what they're going to face? And, and there's a measure of truth to that. But oftentimes they'll ask me, like, do you think I should have kids? Do you think I should bring kids into this world? And my response is always the same, yes. Like, if there's any group of people that need to bring kids into the world, perhaps it would be the people who love God and want to honor God and want to teach their children to be children of faith and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, that's a good thing. And I understand that the night is dark, but when... The, the darker the night, the brighter the light, right? Like, it's a good thing to have children and to raise them for the glory of God, no matter what society you live in. And these were parents of faith who understood God had a plan for Moses' life, and it resulted in personal courage. It says that they were willing to not be afraid of the king's commandment, the commandment being throw the kids in the river and kill them if they're male. If they're female, leave them be. And that, it's a little bit of a head-scratcher at first, because you would think if you have a group of people enslaved Perhaps you would get a better product and a higher yield in terms of just work and building your pyramids or whatever it is from the males. Why kill the males? And the answer is they understood that if we can successfully eradicate a generation of males from the Jewish people, there will be a generation of females that will be forced to intermarry 
with other men, and in so doing, the religion and the teaching and the practices, all of those things will intermarry with them, and we could theoretically be able to assimilate all of these people and allow them to lose their national identity and who they were and who God wanted them to be and assimilate them into productive members of our society if we can do this. But Moses' parents had courage, and they're, they're risking their own necks to say, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to obey the command. We're not going to throw our baby in the river. We're not going to kill our baby. And then that comes out in practical conclusions that they're going to hide the baby three months, right? And the process bears repeating that there is this conviction, this faith, that manifests itself in courage, and that courage manifests itself in practical conclusions. All of those work together. It's not that the spirituality and the practicality are pitted against each other and they don't belong in the same arena. They belong together. Hiding the baby for three months was an intensely pragmatic, common-sense move and was not against their faith, but was in line with their faith. I know that I beat this drum last week, but... It bears repeating. I, I didn't tell you this story, so this will be new. I had a conversation not too long ago with a church planter. He, about two and a half, three years ago, uh, decided that God wanted him to plant a church from scratch up in the northeast. And so he did. Uh, it was, I'm sure, extremely terrifying to step out to trust the Lord. There's a lot financially, emotionally, spiritually that goes into all that. It's not an easy process for someone to do it. But he had the faith that God wanted him to do it. He had the courage to trust the Lord and to go do it. It's been two and a half years or so. And he was saying that he just anticipated that it would have been different. Like, he didn't have visions of grandeur in his mind, but he just thought that two and a half years in, it'd be a little bit more stable, that things would, would, would be kind of uh, off to the races a little bit, and that they're just struggling. And so I've... I've Asked him a series of questions that were along the lines of, well, did you do any, like, training for church planning? Like, did you go to seminary for this? No. Uh, did you link up with any sort of church planning network? You know, those places exist where there's front-end resources, and on the back-end there's coaching and mentoring and help and, and, and people to help guide you through this process. Did you, you know, hook up with, like, a church planning network? No. Did you find, you know, draw a 30-mile radius around your church and go find five guys that have planted a church in your neck of the woods in the last 10 years and get coffee with them and sit down and pick their brains. What did you do? What worked? What can you tell me? What can you teach me? Did you, did you do any of that sort of networking? No. And it dawned on me and hopefully on him at that point in time that the, the problem was not that he didn't have faith or personal conviction. The problem was not that he didn't have courage to trust the Lord. The problem was that he didn't have practical conclusions. That there was all this faith, but there was nothing pragmatic or common sense that was married to this faith, and it resulted in a struggle that probably didn't need to be as big a struggle if there was just some practical conclusions that came out of that, right? And our faith is no different. You don't pit the, the spirituality and the practicality against each other, but you find very quickly that it goes into the story of Moses personally. And that's what the, the chunk of the text is. Verse 23, or 24, excuse me, it says this. It says that by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. And then by faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith, he kept the Passover 
and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So here's what Moses did. Big rocks are he foresaw and he forsook, right? And you can underline these. Verse 26, he thought about the riches in Christ. Into verse 26, he had respect unto the recompense of the reward, meaning he looked ahead and he anticipated the payoff. Verse 27, he saw him who was invisible, right? He's foreseen. He's looking at God. He's keeping his, his, his eyes on the one who is invisible. He is looking ahead to the payoff that will come from trusting the Lord and living a life of faith. He foresees this, and that allows him, leads him, to forsake. It says in verse 24, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It says, verse 25, he wanted to suffer the affliction with the people of God rather than the pleasures of sin. Verse 26, that he tossed the treasures of Egypt to the side. All these things he forsook, right? The position, the prosperity, the pleasure, all of it. Really what the world had to offer. The pride of life, be Pharaoh's grandkid. The lust of the flesh, the pleasures of sin. The lust of the eyes, have all the treasure. It offered it all to him and he said no. He forsook it. He tossed it to the side. How? Why? Because he was able to foresee. And Moses is a man that was willing to stand up straight, square his shoulders back, put his chin up, and say, I belong with the people of God. I'm on his team. I'm not going to straddle the fence. I'm not going to try to have one foot in Egypt and one foot with the people of God. I'm willing to have a faith that is active, a faith that is bold, a faith that is willing to to really take a stand, to commit myself, to take my colors and nail them to the mast and say, I belong with God. I'm on his team. And that is a lesson for God's people. All through the scriptures, you find God encouraging his people to have an overt faith, to have a faith that is out front, that is bold, that is, that is a faith that you are unashamed about. And I'm not saying be weird, right? Because there's also verses that say that your, that your speech should be gracious, that your attitude matters, that you should be winsome. All those things are there. I'm not saying be odd for God. But I am saying what the Bible says is that you should not, when it comes to your faith, equivocate or step back or be tossed to and fro, but be willing to say, I belong with God. I belong with God's people. I'm not scared about that. I'm not unashamed of that. In the same way that you're unashamed about your lifestyle or you want to have a parade about what you want to do or you're unashamed about what you watch or or where you uh, invest your money or what you're passionate about, I'm unashamed to tell you what I'm passionate about, where my allegiances lie, that I will have an overt faith for God and I will be willing to confess him. I will be willing to talk about him and ostracize me. Fine. Push me to the side. Fine. Limit my vertical move up the company ladder. Fine. But I'm going to have a bold faith. That is what the people of God should be. It's what we're called to be. As a matter of fact, Jesus says in Luke and in Mark very clearly that if you're ashamed of me, then I'm going to be ashamed of you. That's how this works. If, if you jump on my team and you follow me, then you're not ashamed about that. And your decision to follow Jesus is a personal decision, but not a private, no one else knows, keep it secret decision. It's never meant to be that way. This is why Romans will tell you in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. 
It doesn't say believe in your heart, keep it to yourself, you're, you're all good to go. It says you will, if you believe in your heart, you will confess them with your mouth. You will open up, not perfectly, not all the time. We all have moments of regret, do we not? Where we wish we would have been more bold, or we thought there was an opportunity to witness there, but we, for one reason or another, we backpedaled, or we got shy about it, bashful about it. We all have those moments. But on the whole, a Christian is someone who says, I'm not ashamed to call myself a Christian. I'm not ashamed to say that I love Jesus. I'm not ashamed to tell you what he's done in my life and how he's working in my life to this day, and I will be overt about that. And Moses is this this guy. And the faith of Moses teaches us an invaluable lesson. We're in new territory now. He teaches us that if you want power for the present, you need faith for the future. I, I barely hit this last week, but these two are so intertwined with each other that here's a man that could stand strong and confident in God. Here's a man who could give up so much. Here's a man who could go through suffering and persecution and could endure all of this. How? It was so affixed to him being willing to think about the reward and put his eyes on God and to have a a future-oriented faith that those two went together in him being able to foresee was a catalyst in his life to allow him to forsake. And this is why, if you read the New Testament for any length of time, you will find that there is tremendous emphasis put on history, on things of the past. You'll find emphasis on the incarnation and on the crucifixion and on the resurrection, things that happened. And we celebrate those events with Christmas and with Easter, and and we should. But you'll also find that there is a tremendous amount of emphasis put on the future, on the second coming of Jesus, on heaven, on the resurrection of those who know Jesus to life everlasting. Those things are all through. They're peppered in the pages of Scripture. And it's there to help us have a future faith and stay focused on that to give us a power in the present. That's how it works. And I, frankly, personally, did not understand a lot of this until I was even out of Bible college and had gone through a lot of church and a lot of youth group and a lot of, you know, getting my bachelor's and even a master's degree before this really sunk into me and began to understand how important it was to look at the things that God has for his children in the future and and what a remarkable power and energy source it is in your life today. I hope, Lord willing, here in late summer, early fall, somewhere in that, in that time frame to do uh, a series on the book of Revelation verse by verse because I really believe it will be a profitable book for us to look at. And it's, it's a book that obviously there's 66 of them. You can't always hit it, you know. Uh, but it's one that a lot of people have questions about, but there's so much gold in those pages of Scripture to do just this, to help, help you have a faith for the future, to give you power for the present. One of my favorite illustrations, if not my favorite illustration of this, which I stole from someone who I can't remember at this point who it was, but I remember the illustration. And if I know I've told it to you before years ago. Sometimes illustrations run together. If I've told you this recently, give me grace and and, uh, forgive my short-term memory loss. I don't think I've said it recently, but there's a chance that I have. But you take uh, two people, say they're women, and you put them in the same job. And it's a job that is drab. It's a job that is tedious. No one would want to do it. 
It's a job that it's 80 hours a week, every week, no vacation, and it's just a grind. And there's two women, and they have the same job, they have the same workstations, they have the same schedule, they have the same conditions, everything's the same. But you tell one of them, you work this job for a year, and I'll give you $15,000. And you tell the other one, you work this job for a year, and I'll give you $15 million. Now, those two women will show up to work every day together, side by side, as if they were Siamese twins. And they will have the same experience, if you will. They will do the job. They will show up. They will, it's, it'll be just as drab for both of them. But they will experience that experience in a different way. Because one of them is thinking, oh, I got 15 grand at the end of this. I don't know if this is worth it. Maybe I should quit the day. Maybe I should, this is just, this is the pits. And the other one's thinking, I got $15 million coming. You know what I can do with $15 million, right? She doesn't have it in her hand yet, but she's thinking about how she's going to spend that $15 million, how she's going to invest that $15 million, what that's going to do for her life. And those two will show up, and they will have wildly different experiences of the present. Why? Well, it's the same, it's the same day. It's the same job. The reason that it's different is because of how they see the future. That one of them has married their heart to something that is beautiful and grand and $15 million for the future, and she'll whistle while she works because that hope is in her, right? And that's the truth of Christianity is that not all this life has to offer will be grand and awesome, and there will be suffering, and there will be pain, and there will be lots of things that aren't that great. But when you have something better than $15 million, when you've got eternity, when you've got Jesus, when you've got glory, when you've got heaven, when you've got a resurrection that's in your heart and you're thinking about, that allows you to experience this experience in a different way. And Moses foresaw. He looked ahead. He had faith in the future, and that allowed him to have a power for the present. But notice with me the last part of Moses' faith. And I would have thought, honestly, that this would have turned the page and it would have been the Israelites' faith. But it still presents, verse 28, is Moses' faith in the singular, he. And we haven't touched on this yet. It says, through faith, he, Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Now, that is a super cliff note version of a big story. The story is the story of the Exodus, especially when you marry this to the next verse of them crossing the Red Sea. And it's a story most specifically of the Passover, of God sending his death angel and the destroyer. Now, whether you realize it or not, this is a story that gets a lot of criticism from people who don't particularly love the Bible or Christianity. And the criticism often goes like this. You know, all you Christian people... You're always, you know, about, you know, life and protecting life and pro-life and, you know, trying to stop abortion and, and you want to care for people physically. So you have, you know, St. Jude's and you have Baptist Hospital, whatever. I've, I've yet to see, you know, Atheist Hospital of whatever or Hindu Hospital of whatever. But they're all, you know, there's a lot of Christian, even Jewish hospitals, right, that, that are all over. I haven't seen the, the Muslim hospital yet, but they're all over. Why? Because there's been this entrenched value of life. That is, that is in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm going to say, look at you, you know, always valuing life, quote, unquote. And then you come to this sort of stuff. You come to the Passover, and here's God just indiscriminately murdering a bunch of people, right? 
He's coming to Egypt and he's killing all the, all, the, all the firstborns. They're born. They're not even in the womb. They're out of the womb. You guys are getting all worked up about, I don't know if you've seen this California bill that uh, is, I don't understand at all, but from what I do understand, it will potentially be voted on here in the near future that there are no criminal punishments uh, legally. You cannot criminally punish a woman if she aborts a child or if she does something that is uh, mischievous or is wrong. Maybe she does drugs or drinks and the baby dies in her womb or even it's up to 28 days after birth. So if there's some sort of infanticide that happens for 28 days after birth, that no criminal punishment can come. I don't know if this law will be passed in California. I doubt that it will, but it could. And someone thinks it's a good idea to put it out there. And Christians, rightfully, have said, what, what's happening, right? Like, what is going on? Like, this is crazy, isn't it? And people look and say, well, you're on about that. God didn't kill the 28 days old. He killed the 28-month-olds. He killed the 14-year-olds. He just wiped out all these firstborns. Look, you have a bloodthirsty God. Who are you, you hypocrites, to declare life when God can do that? Which is, it's a failure to understand the story. The story is that Israel comes into Egypt. They're a small, little, fledgling nation. And they're there for hundreds of years. And they're there by invitation. They were invited. They were given land. They were welcomed. But after a few hundred years, they're not so welcome anymore because they've grown to this, this big tribe. And Pharaoh begins to be worried that maybe they're maybe like literally living in our basement or these people that could overthrow us. So let's enslave them. Let's assault them. Let's systematically murder segments of their population, Right? And God's not super pleased with this. Remember that whole promise of like, I'm going to make a great nation, and you're going to have this land. I mean, he's, he's not about to just let them be decimated. So he sends Moses back into Egypt. And he tells Moses, you can read about this in Exodus 4, verse 22. He tells Moses to tell Pharaoh something real intriguing. He says, I want you to walk up to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him, let Israel, my firstborn, go. And that, and that, that verbiage firstborn is really interesting because it's it on one hand it tells you that firstborn was used in a way that wasn't literally a firstborn it was used as a colloquialism or as a turn of phrase to mean the apple of my eye or the one of prestige or the one I want to give honor to and that's important because side note but when you get to the new testament and you see Jesus referred to as only begotten or you see Jesus referred to as the firstborn of creation in Colossians chapter number 1 it's important that you recognize that even back in the exodus days that they were using this as a turn of phrase to mean the important or the prestigious one or the elevated one not always literally the firstborn so that if you get that sideways you start to go into things that maybe Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses will teach that Jesus was literally created or he's literally a, a demigod or he's the first God, that the real God, Jehovah God, created, which isn't accurate. And it's just a misunderstanding of how the term firstborn can be used. But the most important application in this text is that God viewed Israel and said, tell them you're my firstborn and let them go. And what he says basically is, Pharaoh, if I came to your firstborn son and I assaulted him, and I oppressed him, and I enslaved him. I sought to murder him. Would you be passive? Would you sit on your hands and just let me do it? No, you would not. So why do you think I'm going to be passive? So I'm giving, you, I'm giving you a fair chance, man. Warning, let him go. 
and Pharaoh undo it. God was at God didn't even have to give him a warning. He would have been justified to say, kill my firstborn, I kill yours, the end. That would have been relatively fair in my estimation. But he goes over the top and says, I'm going to warn you. Let him go. And he won't. And then he goes over the top nine more times, and he gives them the plagues, right? Remember the lice and the locusts and the, and, and the disease and the hail and all these things that come. All, nine warning shots across the bow. Let them go. And Pharaoh, sometimes he's going to let them go. Then he breaks his promises. When it's all said and done, he doubles down. And he makes their jobs harder. He gives them fewer resources. He oppresses them and assaults them more. And finally, God says, okay, last chance. Nuclear option here. I don't want to hit the button, but I'm going to. Let them go, or I'm going to kill your firstborn. I'm going to send the destroyer. I'm going to send the death angel. And if you will not let my firstborn go, I'm going to get yours. And Pharaoh doesn't. And the death angel comes. And it's a, it's a spine-chilling account when you read what happens. And the wailing in Egypt and all that takes place. And finally, Pharaoh lets his grip go. And they leave. And what it says is that Moses, when he went to the Passover that he did this by faith. Now, you could rewrite past this and not understand what it's saying. It's very fascinating. On one level, it's saying that faith is, if you remember Hebrews 11:1, 1, faith is the evidence of things not seen. Moses had never seen this. He had never seen a Passover. He had never seen the death angel come. He'd never seen any of this, but he had enough faith to trust God that it would happen. But it's also saying that they had to trust God in this plague and in this instance in ways that they did not in the other nine. So the other nine plagues fell on Egypt, but not on the land of Goshen where the Israelites resided. They were strictly reserved for Pharaoh and his people and not for the children of Israel. But when the death angel comes, it actually is for Jew and Egyptian alike. It's an unusual plague. That this one will apply to both of them, and if they do not take evasive action, then the death angel will kill the firstborn of the Israelites as well. So what's up with that? Why does Moses need to have faith on this one? Why does he have to trust the Lord on this one? Why does he have to kill a lamb and put the blood on the, on the post of the door so that the death angel will pass over them? Why does he have to do this thing? And it was God communicating clues that would be expounded upon as time went on via the prophets and especially through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's him communicating what always has been that everybody, no matter if you're Jew or Egyptian, no matter if you are goody little two-shoes or the, the worst reprobate in the world, no matter who you are, you're all guilty of condemnation and judgment and punishment. And that the Jewish people weren't, you know, spared from this just because of their ethnicity or just because of their pedigree. But he understood this punishment, this judgment will be on everybody unless unless there is a lamb that is slain and the blood that is applied, and then judgment and condemnation no longer rest on you, which is meant to be a massive clue to what one day would happen when a John the Baptist would finally get it and he would say, Behold, Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb that will be slain for sins, the one that if the blood is applied to you, which I understand in a lot of churches it's no longer in vogue to talk about sacrifice and blood and these sorts of things that are deeply entrenched in, in the Scriptures. I was glad the choir sang about the blood of Jesus this morning. That's, that's part of our faith. 
that I will, I will provide a sacrifice, I'll provide a lamb, he will die. And if, and if his blood's applied to you, if you put your faith in him like Moses had faith, if you have that faith, then there's no judgment, there's no condemnation that, that's not for you anymore. I spare you from that. It's meant to be a story that whispers the gospel, that, mis- that whispers the name of Jesus. And Moses, to some degree, understands this. And he has faith, and he trusts the Lord, and now it passes over them, even though they were just as under condemnation as the Egyptians, which is a classic truth claim of Christianity. All over the place you find this truth, that everybody is guilty, no matter how good you are, you're still guilty. And everybody can be saved, no matter how bad you are, you can still be saved. Romans 3 is profound on this issue, where it tells you, it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what your pedigree is. It doesn't, it doesn't matter who you are. All are found guilty and wanting before a holy God. All. And the only way to escape judgment, the only way to escape condemnation and punishment, the only way is to have the blood of the Lamb applied, is to, is to trust by faith in the sacrifice. This is something that deep down we all intuitively know. Our society doesn't want to talk about it, and, and people will act like they don't know it, but we all know it. We all know we've done wrong. We all know that we've sinned. It's not, this isn't just a Christian thing. We all know this. And try as we may or, or get, you know, just the right therapist to teach you that it wasn't your fault or that you didn't do anything wrong. You can try, but it, we all know it. We all know we've done damage to ourselves. We all know we've done damage to other people. We all have skeletons in our closet. We all have regrets. We all have sinned. It's the way that it is. We all know deep down that our world is beautiful. I mean, there's immensities, there's sunsets, there's, there's, sun, there's sunrises, there's mountains, there's oceans, there's all this beauty in the world. But we also know there's all this brokenness in the world. That there's calamity and violence and oppression and there's all this brokenness. And we know deep down that at times we add to the brokenness. And we break trust. And we lie. And we do things to our advantage, but it's not for the good of the whole. We, we know that we do this. And we're all guilty before God. And the game that we love to play is either act like it doesn't exist or B, act like we're better than other people. And you may be better than other people, but the point is never to compare yourself to other people. The point is to compare yourself to God, right? If I, if I had a, a row of little ants running at my feet right here, and one ant will say, the, the leader, Ant A, was average size. And Ant B was under average size. He was just a, an unusually small ant, twice as small as normal. And Ant C was unusually large. He's twice as big as normal. And I picked all those ants up, and I put them in my hand. And the, that means the largest ant is four times bigger than the smallest ant. Wow, that's, that's quite a difference, four times bigger. But those ants in my hand, they're just ants. Compared to me, I don't care if you're average or small or you're big. You're all average-sized ants that I can squash real easy. Like, it's just, you're just little ants, right? And what the Scripture screams at people is, compare yourself if you want. Sure, you may be four times better than them. You may help people four times as often as them. You may be four times as moral as your family or your coworkers or the people that live in your neighborhood. But at the end of the day, you're an ant, I know it's offensive to most people, but it's, understand the metaphor. At the end of the day, when you compare your goodness to the glory of God, 
There's no comparison. It doesn't matter if you're ten times better than them. It doesn't work. You stand guilty. And this story, this Passover, is meant to communicate that Moses had a personal faith. He had a personal faith in the sacrifice. And that blood covered him and all those who did the same. And the death angel passed over, not because they were special or moral, but because they had faith in God. It's the same way it's always been. You go all the way back to Moses, you can go all the way in the future. You're saved by faith. You're saved by faith. That's the way it is. Lastly, and I'm done, the faith of Moses' people. I could say a lot, but I'll say a little. Verse 29 and 30. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, assaying to do or trying to do, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. Now notice the change of the pronouns. It goes from he to they. He, 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 all the way to they, they, they. And it starts to talk about the people as a whole. And on one level, this is meant to teach that your faith is somewhat contagious. If you follow the, the recipe, Moses' parents had faith. Moses has faith, right? Does Moses ever have faith without his parents? I don't know that we can know the answer to that, but I would venture a guess to say no. Moses has faith, and this results in the faith of his people. Would they have had faith without Moses? Maybe. But there was definitely a ripple effect that happened from him now to the people. For them to trust the Lord in the Passover. For them to trust the Lord and to go through the, lead, to, through the Red Sea and to have him be their leader. Now they begin to trust and you can see this ripple effect of his faith, which is meant to tell you that your faith has an impact, whether you realize it or not. On your children, your grandchildren, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's on your parents or on your grandparents. Maybe it's on your coworkers. Maybe it's on your neighbors. Maybe it's on the person that read your Facebook post about what the Lord was doing in your life and you had no idea that they ever read it. I don't know. But your faith has an impact on other people. So keep the faith. Stay strong. Don't, don't be moved away. There are people that need you to live a life of faith, whether you realize it or not. But it's also meant to show us that you can have faith, but tomorrow you're going to need faith again. So here's Moses. Him and the people take the Passover. And it's a big faith moment. I mean, like, there's still a Passover celebration to this day. Like, it was a big thing. They have this faith moment, and they trust the Lord. But then all of a sudden, you fast forward just a little bit, and all, they have to have faith again. They're at the Red Sea. They're tempted to shrink back. They're tempted to be scared, and so they trust him there. They cross the Red Sea, and there's more moments that they have to come, that they get to Jericho, and if you remember, the first time they went to Jericho, they did shrink back. They went, they looked, they scattered it out, 12 spies came back, right? Joshua and Caleb say, let's do it, let's trust God. Ten of them say, nah, you're the minority report, boys. We shouldn't do this, we shouldn't trust God. And the people buy it, and they shrink back, and then they have to wander the wilderness. But eventually, they get to Jericho, and all of a sudden, what do they have to do? More faith. And in the same way that Israel couldn't live off yesterday's manna, that that manna would come, but then it would go stale the next day, and they needed new manna, and new manna, and new manna. In the same way, Hebrews 11 is trying to tell you, you need new faith, you need new manna, you need that to come again. Look back at the things of God. Look back at the moments where he's delivered you, where he's worked, where he saved you, and celebrate them, yes, but don't live back there. Look through the windshield and understand that you have to have a faith-forward approach. 
that these people didn't just have one moment or two moments or three moments, but there was a life of faith to walk forward, to trust him again and again and again in moments that were hard, for them to cross the Red Sea, for them to conquer Jericho. That wasn't easy. That was scary. Again, you think they just reached a spiritual mountaintop? And said, well, we've seen God deliver us once. He'll always do it again. And our faith never falters. And now this is really easy for us. Not at all. They had to go forward. And it's telling you, have a faith forward approach. I want to share with you a story and a picture, and I'm done. I was, actually, right over there, Keith and Paula, the Schultz. I was talking with Keith and Paula the other day at a wedding. Uh, Keith and Paula, and then the Rosenbauers, and the Jacobs. And there's a few families in our church that were here like, at the infancy, like at the start of the church, you know, in the early 80s. And I didn't know the story, but we were talking, and they were were telling me the story of when our first pastor, the man who planted our church in 1983, when he left, he left two years later. That's a picture. We didn't have a picture of Ted Pellick and his family for years, but we found one uh, this year, and it it was fun to, I didn't know what the guy looked like, you know. Well, that's Ted, and that, that would be 1985, when Ted left the church, little storefront building. Many of you have seen that picture of the church before. And they were sharing with me how, at that point in time, you know, you're young, you don't have a building, you don't have assets, you have a few families, you're, you're a young, fledgling startup church. But when Ted left, there was a conversation that happened amongst the people. That was, should we close up shop? I mean, there's other churches in the area. Do we just shut it down? You go there, we'll go there, we'll go here. And do we just, we just call it a day? You know, we made a good run. It's been two years. It's been fun to be a part of this new thing. But do we call it a day? And I'm very grateful that Ted had the faith to go start the church. But I'm very grateful that there was a little handful of people that said, nah, faith forward. We don't know how this is going to work out. We don't have a pastor. We don't know who's going to preach next Sunday, but we'll figure it out. Well, uh, Mark, why don't you preach next Sunday? I'll take the next one. We'll just we'll keep going, faith forward, trust the Lord. Let's see what he, let's see what he'll do. I'm grateful for that. But I also understand that we could go back to 83, and we could go back to 85, and we could go back to 95, or we could go back to 2016. We could go back to any of those years. I understand as great as those moments are back then, and as great as those stories are and those core memories that we have of faith that exist in our body, I also understand that you can't live off that. You have to have a faith-forward approach. You have to say, God still has a plan for us. God still has more people for us to reach. God still wants us to impact more lives and more families and more missionaries. God still wants us to march forward and to do something for him and not just celebrate what was but celebrate what will be and to have a faith-forward approach. And we as a church, and I haven't even been here for a lot of it, but I know we've crossed some Red Seas and we've seen some Jericho walls fall down, if I could use the scriptures in that sort of metaphorical way. We've seen those moments happen, but you still must always have a life of faith to say, let's trust him. I don't know who he wants to heal next week, if it's anybody, if it's five, if it's ten, but let's trust him. Let's try. Let's put it in his hands and say, Lord, you're big and you're strong. Let's, let's see you do some miracles. I don't know who you want to reach, but let's open our mouths. Let's proclaim the message. Let's be a faith family. Let's go forward. So the point of the story of Moses is there's a lot. I wrote down the questions. If I, I haven't been in my notes for a little while. Let me find where they are. 
here are a few questions. This is the end. If you look at the story of Moses in Hebrews 11, do you tend to pit the spiritual and the practical against each other? If so, stop. They're not meant to be pitted against each other. Are you willing to have an overt faith and nail your colors to the mast? Are you willing to say, I'm on team Jesus, and I am, I am not ashamed of that? Are you experiencing the present differently because of what you believe about the future? Or do you think about that? Do you, do you take stock in the hope and the promises of God? Do you see how important your faith is for your kids, for your grandkids, for those that are around you, the ripple effects that your faith can have on other people? Are you willing to live faith forward? Are you willing to trust him? And ultimately, have you put your faith in the sacrifice of the Lamb of God? The one who would put you under the blood so that you're no longer under condemnation. And if you've never done that, start there. Trust him. Know that you can put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain for you, and that you will be delivered from the death angel, as it were. You will be delivered from judgment because your faith is in him. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here in Hebrews 11 and to glean a little bit from these ancients, from these people who were ordinary people with flaws and foibles, but they trusted you and they saw you do some incredible things. And Lord, I pray that in my own personal life, I pray that in the life of my family, I pray that in the life of this church, that we as imperfect people as we are, with all of our hang-ups and issues, that we would still have the courage and the boldness to trust you, to live for you, to proclaim you, to live lives of faith. Lord, I pray that these stories would be more than bedtime stories for the kids or lessons in morality or even just inspiration. I pray that they would inform us, that they would help us, and that we would live for you in a more profound way because of them. Take the truths of these stories and affix them to our hearts, we pray. I'm going to ask you for a minute just to remain in a spirit of prayer, what I would call a response time. And if you're in the room and you're a Christian, you know Jesus as your Savior, then respond to him. Talk to him right now. Tell him the things that you need to lay down. Tell him the things that you need to pick up and implement into your life. Praise him. Just thank him for being the, the true Passover lamb. But talk to him. Don't let these moments go by and just think about what you're going to eat for lunch. Talk to him. If you're in the room and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, I'm here to tell you it's, it's, it's not all that complicated to have him as your Savior. He would love to save you from your sin. He would love to take you out from under wrath and punishment and judgment. He would love to deliver you. And he proved it. Those aren't just words. He proved it. He died on the cross for your sins. It was a demonstration of love. And if you struggle to believe that that's, you know, too fanciful, then he rose from the dead as a proof that what he said was true. And if you have never put your faith and trust in him, not in you, not in your own works, not in your religion, but in him. He says that he'll save you. He'll come into your life. He will save you. He will forgive you. He will give you a home in heaven even if you'll trust him. And if you're in the room, you've never put your trust in him, then right now where you sit, I pray that you will call out to him. He'll hear you just in your heart. 
Call out to him and say, Jesus, I want you to save me. I want to put my faith and trust in you today. I'm not going to trust in other gods. I'm not going to trust in my own good works. I'm going to trust in you. And I believe that you died and that you rose again. And I'm going to live for you boldly and proudly. I will confess you with my mouth. I will not be ashamed. Today I make you Lord of my life. That's not a script. It's not like a magic formula. Those aren't special words. But if you'll pray something like that with genuineness, he says that he'll come in and that he'll save you, that he'll forgive you, that he'll clean you, that his blood will be applied to your doorpost, as it were. So trust him today if you never have. Lord, one final time we come to you, hearts aflame with your goodness and your mercy that you would save us, that you would love us, that you would die for us, that you would be the sacrifice, the Lamb of God. I pray that we never get over it. I pray that we want to celebrate it over and over. And Lord, I pray that we would live for you with a little bit more passion and fervency this week because of what you've done for us. Lord, we love you and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to end this morning with a video. The video is going to say you're dismissed, but you're not because we're going to baptize immediately after it. So watch the video and then enjoy a baptism here in just a moment. Good morning, church. My name is Casey. Hopefully this time of worship has been a blessing to you. We would love to meet you and learn more about you. So stop by our welcome desk after the service and pick up a gift bag that's especially for you. Now let's check out what's happening next at Harvest. Kindergarten graduation is this Wednesday, May 18th. Because of this, there will be no groups, Awana, or nursery on campus for that night only. Our annual Clay Shoot Academy fundraiser is coming up on Saturday, May 21st. Become a sponsor, form a team, or sign up individually. Tickets include Continental Breakfast, 16 shooting stations, golf carts, a fundraiser t-shirt, and lunch after the event. Stop by our welcome desk to sign up. Fantastic Saturday is an event designed especially for our deaf community. If you know someone who can benefit from this event or would like to get involved in this ministry, please plan to attend on June 4th. Our teens are heading to a Christian summer camp. As they earn money to attend, we'd love to give you the opportunity to invest in our young people. Rent-A-Teen is a way to sponsor teens by renting them for a day to do housework, yard work, or some odd jobs that would be a help to you. If you're interested, you can sign up to Rent-A-Teen at the Welcome Desk. We are in full swing of our capital campaign for our new construction and projects, and we couldn't be more excited to be over the $4 million mark. We recently were able to sit down with the Tangs. Let's take a minute to hear their story. Hi, I'm Denny. I've been coming to Harvest here for 15 years. Hi, I'm Janelle. I've been coming to Harvest for 20. And together we have four kids. Three are currently in the academy, and starting in the fall, the fourth one will be two. When I first started coming to Harvest, it was just at the beginning of the last capital campaign. So I actually came when the church was still down on Kenneth Avenue. I really didn't participate a whole lot, to be honest, in the last capital campaign because I was brand new to the church. I was, to be honest, brand new to church, period. And when this opportunity came around, this is my 
attempt to not only participate, but also make up for not participating last time. We had already thought about what we were gonna do. We didn't think we necessarily needed a visit, but I think you're right. I think the visit really helped put things a little bit more in focus for me, and I just felt that little push. We were gonna sign a pledge card, and he showed me the number, and I was kinda like, that's not the number we talked about. But then he talked about, you know, really, how much he has grown in his walk with the Lord as a result of this church. It really was more of a paradigm shift for me as I thought about it afterwards, thinking to myself, let's not make it about what we can do, but let's sit back and watch what the Lord is going to do with what we are feeling led to give. You know, I've really kind of come to this point of being excited about it. Oh, I can't ahead. wait to hear our choir on this oh, new yeah. sound system. I can't wait to hear our, our beautiful orchestra. I think that's gonna be so cool. The sound system and the acoustics in the new building, not picking a seat so that I can see the pulpit because I'll always be able to with the graded seats. I talk about it a lot because I want everyone to get on board with this. I mean, we can't, one person can't do it alone, you know, and we all have a part to play in it. I think of all the people that we've met since the church moved to this location, how much the church has expanded just because of the faith and the foresight that the last capital campaign folks had and building this facility here. And now we have that opportunity to propel the church forward. I know the capital campaign is a huge investment. For me and us personally, it really gives us the opportunity to put into actual practice what Jesus taught us, that we're really just stewards of what he's given us. And we have been blessed with what he's given us. And the chance that we have to put that forward and to invest in his kingdom. It's just, I don't know, it's an indescribable feeling. I just, I get a little choked up about it, just talking about it. Harvest has always been my church. I haven't known any other church besides Harvest, but through the teachings, I've grown in the Lord. Who would be sitting here 15 years from now who would tell you the same thing that I just did and give you the same testimony? So we now have the opportunity to join together, to invest in the eternal kingdom of God, to see what he can do above and beyond what any one of us could even imagine. And it's so exciting to see what the future of Harvest is going to be. It's undeniable that God is working and using Harvest as a beacon of light in this community. It's pretty incredible that we all get to be a part of this chapter as we invest in the next generation. To schedule a visit or volunteer with the Capital Campaign, stop by the Welcome Desk. You can also jump on our website to get more information about our upcoming projects. Thank you again for joining us this weekend. If you made a decision to accept Christ today, we want to celebrate that with you. Stop at our Welcome Desk and let one of our pastors know so we can partner with you as you begin your relationship with Jesus. You can connect with us throughout the week at harvestbaptist.info, Facebook, and on Instagram. You are dismissed, and we'll see you next week. Roy is going to come and help us with this baptism. Uh, this is Kathy. He's going to sign for us because Kathy is a part of our deaf ministry. So he's going to be my interpreter so she knows what we're saying. Uh, normally, when someone's baptized, uh, we clap here. Today, you get to do it a little bit different, okay? So you can holler if you want, 
but this would be the celebration, okay? That's what we're going to do. After Kathy's baptism, instead of clapping, we're all going to do a little, this is, it's the deaf version of clap. So, uh, it, well, if you're excited about it, I'm not going to make you do it. <clears throat> but this is, uh, like I said, this is Kathy, and uh, she emailed us uh, a couple weeks ago, and then she stopped me last week after church and said, I need to be baptized. Uh, I've come to a point where I've put my faith and my trust in Jesus and uh, sits down here every week and, and gets the services via the interpreter and said, I've, I need to be baptized. I said, I'd love to make that happen. So uh, we get to observe this with her today. And there's something about baptism that is similar to Moses standing boldly. There's something about a baptism like this that is a, it's in, in a way a public profession that I'm unashamed of Jesus. I'm willing to identify with him even in the waters of baptism. So, Kathy, I'm going to ask you, have you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus? Have you believed that he died on the cross for your sins? You believe that he rose from the dead? Then I get to baptize you as a sister in Jesus, and I get to do it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried in the likeness of his death, and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Look out there, Kathy. They're all happy for you. <laughs> well, church, I love you. Thank you for being a part of this with us today. God bless, and you're dismissed.